everyone. Welcome to the Subject to Interpretation podcast series hosted by Augustine de la Mora. This is our space for professional interpreters to share their stories and advice and discuss current events in the profession and where it's heading. Today, we will be interviewing the program manager of the Administrative Office of the Courts in Georgia, John Botero. Before we jump into this interview, we'd like to talk a little bit about some new live online classes that are coming up, including our advanced consecutive and simultaneous course beginning on April 1st. This CEU-eligible course is a great way to take your interpreting skills to the next level. Shortly after that, our Intro to Community Interpreting course will begin on April 2nd. This class covers the basics of interpreting in community organizations such as schools, businesses, and recreational institutions. Also beginning on April 2nd will be these two courses, Medical Workers Comp and Intro to Immigration Interpreting. These courses will prepare you to interpret for these specific types of cases. And finally, we are excited to announce that registration has opened for our accent reduction course and our professional Spanish course. These courses will begin in mid-April. To learn more about our upcoming courses, you may visit delamoratraining.com or click the links in the description and sign up for our newsletter for flash promotions and special discounts. We appreciate all of you for listening in. We pride ourselves in being one of the very few podcasts for professional interpreters out there, so please share us with all of your colleagues. We would love to hear your feedback, or if you have any questions, feel free to contact our office. All right. So good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Subject to Interpretation, another one on the series of podcasts that we offer to all of our students and friends and co-workers and colleagues regarding this interesting field of interpretation. So today, uh, we have the pleasure and the honor to have John Botero with us. John Botero is an interpreter, but is also in charge of the court interpreter program in the state of Georgia. So without any further ado, I'm going to uh, let John introduce himself, and we'll get right to it, as we always do in these sessions. So, John, welcome, and thank you very much for being with us. Hi, um, thank you uh, for the invitation. I'm, I'm very honored to be here um, to join you and and also to be able to speak with um, where is Liz, uh, you know, for all the people who listen uh, to your podcast. Um, and I hope that the information I have um, that will be helpful and as I always tell everybody, if there are any questions, please don't hesitate. We're here to help. We're not here to make life difficult. We're sincerely here to help. Well, thank you, John. And how about we start with a little bit of, you tell us a little bit about your professional journey. How did you get to be John Botero, the guy who, I guess, liked the languages, to then becoming, I think you were an interpreter first, and now uh, tell us a little bit about the position that you hold right now. Yeah, well, it was it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I, like many people out there, um, have never heard of the position of interpreter. Interpreting, I was one of those few who, every time they needed somebody to help, it was the to translate. So I, I was one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a business consultant in uh, New York State. I was there for quite some years, and I guess as with everything, you I, I started feeling really burnt out. 
I'm just like, I really, really don't want to do this. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. So I looked up um, the webpage of the Connecticut uh, Judicial Branch, and I noticed that they had a position for interpreting. And I'm just like, okay, great. Um, I looked up uh, the resources that Connecticut had available. I took the written exam. I went through the process and then um, I was an interpreter for two years. Then I really liked it. Um, a lot of stories as to being a court interpreter, uh, court interpreter that I'm sure a lot of people have. Some, everybody has a story about being in court um, and all that. So after that, I became a clerk in Connecticut and I was a clerk for, gosh, uh, I think two years. Don't, don't remember exactly. Um, and all of this was happening at the same time that I was pursuing a master's in public administration. So uh, when the time came that I graduated, I'm just like, okay, what am I going to do with this degree? So I started looking around, um, and I am not ashamed to say that I came to Atlanta Pretty much by mistake. I wasn't expecting uh, to come to Atlanta. I really, I've heard stories of Georgia that, you know, I have, I can now debunk. Mm -hmm. um, so I started, um, I moved to Georgia and then I was working on something called the Georgia Judicial Exchange, which is a part of uh, child support for the courts. And then the position uh, became available for program manager for the Office of Court Professionals, which is uh, the office of the Judicial Council's Administrative Office of the Courts that deals not only with uh, court interpreters, but also with uh, process servers and court reporters. So I knew my predecessor, um, and he was like, hey, John, you have the experience as an interpreter. I think that this would be very helpful to people who, um, you know, in, 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 the, um, in the policy aspect of it, having the experience of somebody who's, who's done it before might be helpful. Um, I applied and I went through the hurdles and here I am. And as a matter of fact, I think I've been here 19, 20 months already. So I'm still, I'm still when it comes to the experience of other language access coordinators, uh, throughout the country, I'm I'm, I'm still pretty new, um, but I'm I'm loving it. I mean, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to shift and change, uh, not just the, the 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 profession in the state of Georgia, but also it helps me um, to educate the different judges, different types of courts, different um, court staff about the importance of having a, a licensed court interpreter in a courtroom. So that's pretty much a bit of what I've done and how I got here. Well, thank you, John. And that, that seems to be like the story of many of us. So let me ask you a little bit, uh, going back a little bit, you said sure. that you worked as an interpreter in Connecticut. Did you have to get certified to do that job in Connecticut? Well, in Connecticut, um, it's, it's a bit different. So in Connecticut, you, um, you take the written test. 
if you pass it, you go through a sort of like an internal oral exam. And if you pass it, then you, you are assigned to a courthouse. So Connecticut is a centralized court system, as uh, unified, I, I should say. Um, it's a unified court system. So they assign you to a courthouse. They assign you to a mentor who will, you will shadow for 90 days. And part of the shadowing is um, the mechanic, learning about the mechanics on how to become a court interpreter. Then after that, you go through an oral exam, um, not the National Center for State Courts oral exam. You go through an internal oral, oral, oral exam. And if you pass, then you become, then you are a temporary court interpreter. You're allowed to do hearings. You're allowed to interpret on the record, you are sworn in. Uh, one year after that, you take the, um, the oral exam. And this is the National Center for State Courts exam. So Connecticut had, did a wonderful job in providing the training for, uh, for taking that oral exam. There were classes, there was um, mock tests, there were mock tests. So it's pretty robust. And yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wanted to interrupt you there because I think this is a very important part of what we are trying to do. You uh, recognize, and I guess Connecticut recognized and was able to establish something that uh, is quite important. That is to eliminate the idea that because a person is bilingual, you are automatically just shove them into a courtroom and now they're court interpreters by the power of the word, you are now a court interpreter. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that that is very, very important. It's, um, as you said, Agustin, not just because you're bilingual, you're an interpreter. And, um, and unfortunately, there, there are many people out there who, who think that just because you speak two, three, four languages that you're able to interpret in any type of setting, which is absolutely not the case. I mean, I worked with many wonderful people who, um, despite the fact that they had years of experience, they still have to look words up. They still practice. They still study. They still um, continue enhancing their skills as part of their professional development. So just because one is able to speak two or more languages does not make you not only a, a an interpreter, but also one who is able to go out into the world and take every assignment they, they can get, be it court, be it medical, be it community, whatever it is. Just because you speak two languages or more does not make you an interpreter. And a lot of interpreters of, you know, uh, of professional interpreters have to go through extensive training, even after they become certified or they pass the national test or, um, I mean, or whatever part in their, in their professional development, um, federal, whatever it is, they, they still have to go. It's a constant thing. It's not, it's not something that once you reach a certain uh, milepost that you're done, quite the opposite. That's just first chapter in, in a very, very long book. Correct. Correct. So then you became uh, an interpreter in Connecticut, and then you moved to, to uh, Georgia. 
Well, then, um, then I moved to become a clerk. I was actually a family oh, clerk. Okay. Um, I really loved it, and I was, um, I've always been very intrigued as to the inner workings of the court, if you will, because when, when you're an interpreter, one of the things that I kind of always lamented was you're in for a hearing, and then you're out, and then you go do another one, and then do another one, and sure, that's wonderful experience, but at the same time, for example, you cannot sit in a whole trial. Um, you cannot, or you're unable to follow these cases and follow the other aspect of what's going on in the courthouse. So I was a clerk for a while. And then when I graduated uh, from Pace University with my master's in public administration, I said, okay, now I have this nice little piece of cardboard. What do I do with it? <laughs> um, so I started looking everywhere. Um, I started looking in first into states that I really wanted to to go into, unfortunately, at that time, Connecticut had nothing had nothing available, um, and New York. I don't remember. I I did apply to New York and to other places in the Northeast, um, but ultimately, um, and as I said, out of sheer luck, I ended in Georgia. I submitted um, my application without even remembering that I did, and when I got a call back, I was. I was very surprised, and I guess what it's meant to be, you know, and I yeah. guess meant to be. And and don't get me wrong, I love Atlanta. It's a wonderful city. I was told at one point that all I was going to see um, was going to be tumbleweeds and like old uh, service stations and just people sitting around. And that actually, really? yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh, the best part of Atlanta is just leaving it. I'm like, okay, and so I came with. I came with a bit of, um, I came with, uh, when I came to an interview, I, I guess I came to with, with a little bit of concern and then I saw the town and the city and how wonderful it is and everything that, I mean, there's so many things you can do here. Oh yeah, it's yeah, a beautiful so, city. I'm you sorry. Know, I wish you could see some tumbleweeds because what I remember about Atlanta the most is that I love the place, but there's traffic is, Horrible. <laughs> yes, um, I will say this. Um, I don't know what is wrong with the traffic here. It is it is unbelievable, and um, I guess the driving skills of a lot of <laughs> of its citizens is um, right. it's questionable. questionable at best. Got it. But regardless, um, I mean that's just I guess that's the price we have yeah. to pay. But other than that, I absolutely love the place. Um, it's it's growing fast, and at the same time, we have. We not, I mean, not only the um, not only the um, the English speaking population is growing, also the LEP population is growing. So, of course. Um, so it's it's one of those things where change is here, and we have to confront it, and we have to do our best. So. So it's really exciting to be part of this at this particular time and place where things are happening, things are changing, and you know I, I get to contribute even if it's a little bit. I get to contribute to to a part of that. Right, and I think that using a, a term that is in vogue right now, you are definitely an influencer as far as uh, the direction and the understanding of people, because you mentioned also you're an educator, because I think there's a lot of education to be done, not only uh, of interpreters, but the people who use their services. Would you agree? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, um, having professional interpreters in a court in a courtroom is is half the battle. Um, there are also instances where, um, I mean, if you if you have a, I mean, not to pick on judges, obviously, but yeah. but if you have a judge who may not know the difference of a um, certified interpreter and let's say an interpreter from an agency or or just who's not certified, right? Yeah, who's not certified, most likely, um, then it's it's essential to educate them and tell them the value that yes, you might be paying more for a certified interpreter, but you know what? At the end of the day, it pays back to have a certified interpreter. And in Georgia, we have specific rules for that. But um, a lot of the judges where I've gone, um, I've gone through different uh, conferences and spoken to them and um, and a lot of the judges have approached me and said, you know what, I didn't know that. I yes. didn't know that um, certain cases need certain type of interpreters or that I had these options. Um, so it, it's wonderful to educate the bench and also to educate court, court staff because mm-hmm. um, this might not be something that they have to encounter every day, specific, specifically in rural counties where the need might not be as as consistent as, let's say, um, Metro Atlanta or the suburban um, counties. So it's it's really important to educate everybody and to let them know also that that we're here as a resource, that we're not here just to tell them what they have to do, but also how we can help them. Right. And I think that one of the things that uh, might be completely misunderstood even by bilingual people, is the theory that because you speak the language, that's that's that. You don't need anything else. And I think I've had the same experience with other judges who have told me, uh, oh, I didn't know that uh, you require that uh, to become a certified interpreter. I thought everybody was... Uh, I even had a judge that uh, when he was brand new uh, and he was needing interpreters, and I told him, we really don't have any certified right now and he told me well go out there and certify more people and then after it's not easy yeah yeah (laughs) and then when he attended one of our classes and saw the process through which interpreters go through and the education requirements and the uh, test requirements he came to me and said oh now I know why you said I can't do it today or tomorrow there is a process so what do you think from the interpreters that do understand that uh, and that they, they do take the time and the effort and frankly spend the money yeah. to get trained to become certified interpreters. What's the biggest roadblock for them? What what are their challenges for this certified interpreters? Um, I think that it, it, in my experience and what I've been able to see is that um, a lot of people get discouraged by the process, specifically the oral exam um, that's issued by the uh, the National Center for State Courts, and I'm not, I'm definitely not criticizing the test. I, I think it's a wonderful tool. Um, the problem is that a lot of people um, do not prepare enough. Um, they just think that it's an oral test, and it's not. Um, and I mean, w- and when it comes, for example, for attorneys taking the bar. Um, they have to study hundreds of hours. They have to prepare 
um, or when somebody's taking the board, it's, um, the board admission or to become doctors, they have to go through extensive uh, preparation. Um, what may, I mean, obviously, I know that those are very different fields to the field of interpreting, but this is also the same thing where yes. people have to go through extensive preparation and um, and not understanding that this is not a trade or this is something you do on the side. You can, this is a profession and this requires the same attention and the same, um, I guess, respect that uh, certain, that other professions have that, that, yeah, that you want to become an interpreter. That's great. That's awesome. We're cheering for you. However, you have to do a lot of work. You have to prepare for, the written exam first and then the oral and and it's not just about how well you know the words but also the mechanics of it and um and being patient then with with yourself unfortunately as as we know the national trend is that um the passage rate is somewhat low and mm -hmm. it's um and where do we amount of i mean where what can we blame do we blame well the test is too difficult the test is um unrealistic or is are you just not preparing well not prepared. and i think that that's a good analogy because i tell attorneys not only they said well i i took the bar exam and and i passed it. i said yes and you have to study a lot i mean they have even specific classes for the bar exam and people take but they also went to college after yeah. having a, a bachelor's degree and have an education and then they expect somebody with none of those things to come and, and be successful. So I agree. Um, so you think that that's one of the uh, obstacles that they are facing. What do you think about the competition many certified interpreters are facing from uh, other organizations, as you said, agencies and whatever, that are not really paying attention to training, but just to offer the money, I mean, offer the service and then therefore can offer it for less because you, you said something about they don't want to pay or some of the end users don't want to pay. You think that's a problem too? I do. And, and I think that um, in part, um, that's something that we as the regulating bodies for the profession have to um, recognize and we have to address. Um, we understand that we, that every interpreter who might go um, into a courtroom might not be certified because they are from an agency. I'm not trying to pick on agencies, just using them as, mm -hmm. as an example, that they're not certified or, or they're not, uh, you know, that they're just bilingual. Um, and that's really challenging because obviously they're going to be charging a lot less um, than a certified interpreter. And that's something that the states um, individually have to sit down and have to, they have to recognize that that is a problem, that this is something that needs to be fixed. Um, I, for example, have been part, I, I have brought this item up to the Commission on Interpreters of the Supreme Court of the State of Georgia, and I've told them, you know, a lot of these people who go and um, go into a courtroom, the only certification that they, quote unquote certification, if I may, um, part of the whole thing that they go through an agency or through a provider is just, you know, that they ask three questions. Are, 
and I'm exaggerating, but mm. do you have a pulse? Yes. Are you breathing? <laughs> yes. Can you speak? Yes. Welcome. You're now an interpreter. That's, right. That's, That's right. not it. That's not how it works. And at the end of the day, sure, um, the, the courts benefit because they're paying less. Mm. Um, the, the firm or the provider benefits because they're doing business. But who is affected? The LEP. They are the ones who are affected, who might not be receiving a proper, um, who might not be receiving proper interpretation and who might be um, just simply getting a summary of, of what's being said in court and are not able to participate in their own defense. That's not equal access to justice. Um, Correct. And, I, and I think that that is the main idea of having interpreters, right? I, I have a, a friend, her name is Patricia Mikkelsen King, and I think that one of the things she says applies here because she says having an interpreter is not a language right, it's an access right. And yeah. I think that's where people get confused. And I absolutely agree with that statement. Uh, if, if somebody, if an English speaker goes into a courtroom, they're able to understand every single word that it's, uh, well, even if they don't understand the, the legalese, um, they're able to at least know what's going on. They're able to take the cues from the participants or in the courtroom. Um, they're able to understand all of that, even if they don't understand the essence of it or the legalese of it. They're able to oppose something that's said or at least bring up um, an issue or try to correct something if they can. Right. Or even ask for, for a clarification, because I think even culturally, uh, people that are born and raised in this country understand the legal system because I always tell my students, uh, in this country, it's impossible to escape the law in the sense that you watch TV, they talk about attorneys. You watch a movie, there a lot of them are about attorneys. Uh, you read the newspaper, they talk about lawsuits and cases all the time. I mean, yesterday we had a big case of a gentleman testifying, so and everybody knew about it. So, yeah. And people here are a lot more used to it. When you come from other countries, A, you might not understand. If you don't understand, you don't even know that you have the opportunity to ask for that question. But I wanted to go back a little bit on what, what you're saying about preparation. So what would you recommend to people who say, well, I heard that the exam is hard. How do they get prepared? Um. I mean, the, 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 I would say the reality is, if somebody asks me, is the test hard? I, I will not shine tests this hard. And that's for a reason. It's, it's hard because it's meant to encourage people, not deter people, but encourage people to prepare. How do you prepare? I, I, when we have the orientation sessions um, here in Georgia, um, I give them the cliche, look to your right, look to your left. These are people you might want to study with, pairing up with somebody, have a body, um, you know, just go through the exam. Um, I know there's a, there are a ton of resources out there um, for self-study. Uh, the National Center for One, they have wonderful resources. Um, also take classes, um, join groups and for example, um, I mean, you have um, come to, to Atlanta and, and, and done trainings, which, mm. which are essential. Um, 
do all these different things just because, um, I mean, just because you have a test and you printed or downloaded the test prep doesn't mean that you're going to pass. You have to be continuously studying, uh, prepping up with somebody, um, joining, like I said, joining um, online classes or live in se- live sessions and, and try to make it a state of mind that you are preparing for a marathon. I mean, it's like if you're preparing for a marathon, you just don't buy the sneakers and leave them in the box and expect to run the marathon and be able to win. Just no, that's not the way it works. Same goes for this. This is a marathon and you have to prepare continuously and religiously. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes a lot of people might not feel encouraged by that. And, And I understand it. Like I've said, it's not an easy test, but it's not undoable. I mean, obviously, a right. lot of people have right. passed it, um, right. even the dreaded federal test. So, um, so it's not undoable. Right. And I think that also part of preparation, I wanted to ask you, if I live in the state of Georgia, does your outfit encourage people to come and watch other interpreters work or follow them or go to court to see what's going on. Correct. So part of the requirements to become licensed in Georgia, and actually one of the requirements prior to taking the oral exam is that the candidate um, does what's known as code observation. So um, the way the code observation works is that they go to a courthouse um, and if they they see a certified interpreter, they can, they need to do three hours of court observation with a certified interpreter or six hours if there's no interpreter um, in the courtroom. And, and we've had instances where actually a lot of people have gone to do their court observation. Um, we have wonderful resources in, in different counties where they actually do sort of like a shadow program where the person would come and just shadow a certified interpreter ask all the questions they want and be able to understand more of the profession and be able to understand um, what's it all about. What are your expectations? What do you need to do? Um, How to do certain things. Um, So I think that doing due diligence, if you will, is is essential prior to, to becoming a certified interpreter. Whatever it might be, not just in Georgia, but yes, we do have that, that program here. Yeah, and I think that's important. And and again, you know, it's funny. I'm sorry. Well, you should you should go to court, right? I tell. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, you cut out for a few seconds. Yeah. Okay. So no, what I was saying is, when I'm teaching a class, I often tell people, well, you should go to court and many of them ask me oh can i go to court and i said like it seems that there's not even enough information out there for people to understand that courts are public places that people can visit at any time correct and um and i think it's essential not just because they they are public forums you can go in there obviously there are instances which you are not allowed to to observe let's say if it's a juvenile case or um, certain cases of domestic violence or if the courtroom is sealed and that's fine but there are several instances where um, you are allowed to sit even if you don't have a case and 
be able to understand, and it's, it's, at least in my view, it's not just to see what an interpreter is doing or the way the process works, but it's also to catch those words that you might not hear every day. For example, appearance, you know, things, things like that, that um, knowledge, whatever it is, whatever legal terminology it is, that is not used on a daily basis. Um, I mean, if you're taking a test to become a, a certified interpreter, um, you might want to acquaint yourself with certain legalese terminology simply because that's what you're going to be doing every day. So um, know what's going on in a courtroom before you go there for the first time. That's right. So, John, I, I know that we asked you for, for some time of your time, and we're getting close to the end, but I do want to ask you, where do you see the future of this career, this profession? Do you think it's going to grow or not? Because I have to tell you that some years ago, a guy that I met, uh, let's say about 20 years ago, told me, get ready, Agustin, because within a five-year period, machines will be doing your job. So are we going to be replaced by robots, you think? Well, um, I would say no. And the, and the reason, I, I know there's a bit of hesitation um, when I answer because um, it's, it's we're, I'm thinking of two different scenarios. The one scenario where you're in a courtroom and you need the quick wit, you need the understanding of a real person. Um, you need to understand the little intricacies of the language in order to be able to uh, interpret accurately. Would Google Translate be able to do that? Perhaps not. It, I don't think you would be able to do that, even with the most advanced system. Um, the, the, the technology will, at least for now, will not be able to pick up those little cues that are given sometimes in a courtroom or the use of a certain word or, or something like that. Um, right. So I don't think that in court there will be, um, I don't think that interpreters will be um, replaced by AI. Now, right. when it comes to uh, shorter matters, um, coming into the, um, the clerk's office and asking for a document for little trans smaller transactions than that, um, like that, I think that there is a use for AI, especially because if, if you are a court of limited resources and somebody comes and says they want to file for a marriage license, instead of having to pay somebody to travel to interpret for that, AI would be great. It helps. But um, I don't think the profession is going, a, is going away anytime soon. Um, I think that having a warm-blooded interpreter in the courtroom is, is essential um, instead of have, leaving that to, to some robot or AI or you know, Google Translate, whatever it is. Um, though, be a, though it is a great tool, I, I honestly, in my own very humble opinion, I, I don't think that they can replace or will repra replace um, in court, um, in-person interpreters. And um, I guess that would probably be part of what um, a lot of the uh, language access coordinators will have to speak with yeah. uh, their judges, just telling them like, hey, Google Translate is great and everything. If you want to order a pizza in a foreign country, <laughs> or if you want to know where the nearest restaurant is, right. but when you have to talk about... Um, things as serious as perhaps sexual abuse 
or domestic violence inside a house, there's absolutely no way that you would want to have um, Google Translate do all the work. It, it's, right. it's no good. And that will be, I guess that's the, the next task for, for us to teach everybody about that and just know how important it is to have somebody in the courtroom be able and be able to interpret not only accurately, but also effectively. Right. Well, uh, I think that, uh, John, we could go about this forever, but we did promise some end, end time to this, to this <laughs> get together. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, you said that people, especially if they live in Georgia, can uh, contact you. What would be the best way to contact you? Uh, which is, what's your website? Where should they go? Yes. So um, the Commission um, on Interpreters website is COI. Uh, that's Charlie Oscar Ivan at, I'm sorry, COI dot Georgia Courts, and it's Georgia all spelled out, Courts, um, C-O-U-R-T-S dot gov. And when you go to the page, you'll have access not only to resources, uh, to how to study for the test, um, how to become a certified interpreter in Georgia, what steps we have, but also you can sign up and um if you want to take the next orientation or know exactly what the process is in Georgia, um, all that information is there. But also um, my email and that of um, our project coordinator, Bianca Bennett, who is essential to what we do here. Um, her information is there also, and we are always willing, ready, and able to help as much as we can. Well, thank you very much, John, and uh, we'll see you around. Uh, I don't know if you're going to Najib uh, this coming oh, Absolutely. May. I will well, see you in Najib. Then we'll see you in Najib, and thank you very much again for agreeing to talk to us. Uh, and thank you all of you for listening, and we'll see you on the next edition of uh, Subject to Interpretation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today. Next week, we will be shining a spotlight on one of our federally certified instructors, so we look forward to seeing you then.